Great singing. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to the book of John, the Gospel of John. John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 16, these are the words of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we desire to know you, and we know that in order to do that, we need your Spirit to awaken us and to keep our eyes on Jesus. And we also know that your word is powerful and that in order to, to best know you, we must know your word. So guide us this evening, I pray. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I recall several years ago having a, a friendly little debate, a little chat with a friend, a co-worker at that point, regarding the Bible and how we interpret it. I don't remember all the details surrounding the conversation, um, but one thing I do remember was his closing argument, and this is what he responded with. You have your verses, and I have my verses. Since then, I've heard that phrase pop up from time to time, to time and I believe it to be quite an irresponsible thing to say. Um, whenever opinions differ on interpretations of Scripture, we have a few things that we must keep in mind. First, we must always start with the assumption that if there is any error in the interpretation process, um, that it's our fault, not the Bible's fault. Um, it's, it's our problem. If, if, any, if at any point during your interpretation process that you begin to think or say things like, well, the Bible couldn't possibly mean that, then congratulations, you are on your way to quite possibly being a heretic. Now, if you don't like something, or I don't like something in the Bible, it's, it's me that's the problem. It's you that's the problem, not the Scriptures. And so I would beg of you to have this mind among you. Second, since we care deeply about the Word of God, we have to remember that all of Scripture is breathed out. It's theopneustos. It's breathed out by God. So we say around here, all of Christ for all of life. That is our rally cry. That's our vision. Um, you, on the front of your um, bulletin there, it, it says what our purpose is. We exist to equip men, women, and children to press the crown rights of King Jesus into every area of life. So that's why you exist, that's why I exist, that's why Jesus saved sinners, to do that. Um, and so one of the ways that we do that is we look to all of Scripture. All of Scripture. You, will, you won't hear us say the phrase here ever, we are New Testament Christians. We are Bible Christians. Um, the Bible is a book of many books, and all of them are equally inspired by God. So really, in a sense, you ever, anybody ask you the question, what's your favorite verse or what's your favorite book of the Bible? Well, in a sense, you don't, you don't, you don't get to have a favorite book of the Bible 
because you don't like what other books have to say, right? You don't, that's not, uh, that's not an option. So we have to veto that right away. <laughs> so you don't, you don't get to pick and choose what you like or what you don't like about scripture. With the Bible from cover to cover, you take all of it or you take none of it. You take all of it or you take none of it. So that's second. Third, whenever we discuss theological interpretations of the scriptures, we would do wise, we would be wise rather, to remember that since all of scripture is inspired by God, is breathed out by God, all of the scriptures teach the same things with internal consistency. So wisdom, wisdom shows us that we should interpret all of the harder passages in light of the clearer passages, not the other way around. And that's where we start concocting all these various theological, you know, out there beliefs when we take the hard things and we just sort of ignore the clear things and we don't interpret them the right way. Um, so you don't get to say to, to someone, well, I don't, I don't like what you think about this particular issue. And I know that you have your verses that you choose to defend your position, um, but you should know that I have my verses too. So, in other words, we don't, have a, we don't have a Bible that teaches one thing over here and then a different thing over there. That's not how the Bible is, is laid out. The Bible is consistent all the way down, all the way through. It's consistent. Now, the reality is, all of you, and kids, you should know this too, all right? So listen carefully. All of you are systematic theologians. All of you are systematic theologians, so that's not a negotiable thing either. You don't get to say, but dad, I don't want to be that. You are that. Um, you, you don't get to decide if you want to be one or not. You are all systematic theologians. Everyone, everyone pieces together the Bible so that it's both coherent, right, and understandable, but it's, it's also manageable for our finite brains. So... No doubt, some people are bad ones, bad systematic theologians. Um, but that's not the same thing as saying that you're not one altogether. Whenever we piece together the truth of God's word, we are inevitably uh, putting together buckets of truth in hopes to collect all the proverbial rain. So I'll say that again. Whenever we're trying to piece together the truth of the Bible, when we're reading it, studying it, trying to, you know, well, Leviticus says this, but Peter says this about Leviticus, and, but I'm not sure how that fits. Whenever we're doing any of that, all of us have to have these buckets of truth. You have to be able to put things in them. Now, for example, many people do not have a category, they do not have a bucket for God's hatred of evildoers. Um which is, is in found in all sorts of places. Psalm 5.5, 5, uh, Psalm 11.5. You have uh, uh, Leviticus 20, verse 23, uh, Hosea 9.15, Proverbs chapter 6. What does what the Lord hate? Hands that shed innocent blood. The Lord hates it. So you have... So that's a biblical category. You have to have a bucket for that. It's just there. And you have to figure out how to deal with it. And you have to figure out how to compare it with other things. The people who don't have that bucket, they immediately 
jump to our Bible verse this evening and they say, no, 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 no. God loves the world. God is Jesus. Jesus is God. Amen. Good work. (laughs) So in an effort to sort of save face from embarrassment and not having a bucket and thus seeing water spilt all over the place, um, this person has quoted one verse where we have already listed five. So now we're playing that game, this back and forth thing. So that's not to say that whoever can quote the most verses wins. (laughs) That's not it either, so don't fall into that ditch. It simply means that we must be able to categorize all Bible verses, um, or we risk having only some health, some degree to our systematic theologies. In other words, like you could be very much right about one verse and completely wrong about a dozen others. So to sum up what I'm arguing, our task is to make sure that we have multiple categories so that we are not assaulting Scripture to make it suit our ends. Okay, We have to have these categories. We have to have places to put these things so that we're not, um, we're not assaulting the Bible. We're not assaulting it, ripping it out of context to make it suit our ends. So it's not that you have your verses and I have mine. Rather, here's the debate. We all have the same verses So let's study really hard to make sure that we're getting at what God is really saying, lest we make ourselves look like a bunch of fools. Besides, the verses that you have, I have too. And I have a way uh, of putting verses together that maybe you hadn't considered, or vice versa. Maybe you have strung them together in a way that, wow, that's that's new to me. I, I hadn't made that connection. So that's why this series is called Misunderstood Verses. Um, we have a penchant to gloss over the familiar. We, we are familiar with John 3.16. You see it at sporting events. Um, you, you, it's out there, right? And, and so we sort of, uh, that familiarity does breed contempt sometimes. Or at best, familiarity sort of breeds laziness. You may not hate it, you just don't care. So we need to be careful. So our text tonight is without a doubt the most well-known verse in the Bible, hands down the most well-known verse in the Bible. Because of that fact, it's also one of the most misunderstood and distorted verses as well. Why is that? Well, let me quote um, the late R.C. Sproul. He said this and profoundly summarizes it. He said, It is because people who love the apparent universality of this verse hate the undeniable particularity of it. I'll say it again. What? Why why is this misunderstood? Here's here's Sproul's answer. It is because people who love the apparent universality of this verse hate the undeniable particularity of it. In other words, John 3.16 is often quoted to somehow say that, well, since God just loves everybody, you know, everyone's going to heaven. Um, It's a sort of universalistic approach to the gospel. Um, The universalists who reject the doctrine of hell love to quote this verse. It's one of their favorite verses. Um, However, they are simply misusing the text to further their heretical agenda. So it's a well-known verse, but it's very much misunderstood. So let's go ahead and read it it again. And I'm going to pick it apart very closely, so bear with me. And let's read the context, though, by starting in chapter 3, verse 1. 
uh, I want to see. I want you to see the this, the context, the over, overarching storyline. Verse one. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit." Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Did you catch the bucket that was missing there? (laughs) How can these things be? I have no category for this. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of of the only begotten son of God. Now, the context is pretty straightforward. Nicodemus He is a teacher of Israel. He is an esteemed teacher of Israel. And what do we learn? He has bad theology. It has a defect in it. There's a problem. Um, Israel is a hot mess because her leaders, they don't know anything about regeneration. They 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 don't know. They have no concept. They know generation. They know progeny. They know covenant faithfulness. They know God's plan for blessing children and future children and so on. Now, Nick, if I may call him this, understands that to be born of flesh is flesh. He understands that that verse, he he understands that part, but he isn't equipped to understand the doctrine of the new birth. Jesus is teaching something he has no idea. He, He went to Bible college, Nicodemus, and like today, you can graduate and not know what that is. Um, they, apparently, they didn't have an elective on the new birth there at Jerusalem U. So Jesus clarifies with him how this whole thing works. In order to be redeemed, or better yet, saved, you have to be born again. That's the prerequisite. The only way that someone gets born again is if the Spirit of God blows like the wind on that person's heart. So you can't make yourself born again. That's a logical contradiction. You don't make yourself born again. 
you have as much to do with your new birth as you did your physical birth. Zero. Right? None of you said, hey, I, you know, I'm being born now. Give mama the epidural. You had nothing to do with it. You were just slimy, beautiful baby, right? Um, <laughs> for the visual there. So, so Jesus, Jesus straightens out this doctrine. He sets the record straight on what he's doing. He's teaching about the kingdom. And the only way into the kingdom is by and through the means of the Holy Spirit. Now, near the end of this exchange, notice that Jesus tells a story about Moses and the bronze serpent from Numbers 21. Jesus is the bronze serpent. Um, Back in Numbers, if you recall, the Israelites were being bitten by snakes um, that God had sent to uh, judge them. That's a whole different category. We'll deal with that another day. But God instructed Moses to put a bronze serpent on a pole and hold it up high, and that if, if a venomous snake had bitten anyone, they could look to that bronze serpent on the pole and they would live. That was the deal. So they have to look outside themselves for salvation and rescue. That, that was part of the illustration. Now, Jesus says that what he is doing is just like this. Jesus he will be bitten by the snake on the heel, right? That's his death. He will die on a pole. And, and people will have to look to him to be saved. That's the connection. Jesus is the son of man who must be lifted up, as he says repeatedly. He must be put on, on the cross. Why? So that salvation can come. And notice verse 15. Look at verse 15. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's the exact same phrase as our verse here in John 3.16. So that's the context. That's the context of the passage. So, question for you. Who has your Bible open? Answer this for me. Does, is John 3.16 in red letters? Yeah. You have it in yours? Yep. Who, okay, mine does not. All right. Now, here's why I bring this up. Um. Some Bibles, some Bibles have it in red letters, um, and some Bibles may have red letters other way, other places, but not there. And so this is sort of a sidebar, but um, the reason is obviously because when you know the Bible was written, the, the Greek language didn't have quotation marks, um, nor did it have chapter numbers and verses and so on. It was basically a, a string of letters and words and um, sentences, all without really punctuation. You, you have to kind of know Greek to know where to begin and end. So the question then becomes, um, for all of this, is Jesus still talking here? Is he, some people believe that he is that he's still continuing the lecture with Nicodemus. Um, many scholars today don't think so. And I, don't, I really don't know what to tell you. I don't know what I think. <laughs> just, just a sidebar, fascinating thing here. Was he continuing the conversation with Nicodemus? Or is John interjecting sort of like the, what the Spirit is saying regarding this whole interchange with Nicodemus? So, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure, but you can decide for yourself. So having said all that, let's, let's just pick apart the verse and we'll kind of go over there. Let's start with the first phrase, for God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. What's the for for? In the Greek, the word is a three-letter word, gar. Um, it simply means for. There's no really controversy on that translation of what that word means. 
Clearly, John intends for us to see what has come before as the four sort of continues the thought. You know, all this for, and it goes into the next thing, um, based upon what was just said, John's getting at, for God so loved the world. Now, this is not, this is not the same thing as saying, you know, I so love tacos, or I so, um, I so love my wife, more endearing than tacos. The so isn't to be understood as so much or the degree in which God loves. It's all about the manner of God's love. So um, I don't always do this. Once in a while, I pull out the Greek Bible and you look at the words and you sort of just see how different translators piece them together. And you know everybody has sort of a different way of doing that. But generally, I decided that um, I would give you the JGV, <laughs> the Jason Garwood version of this verse. And I'm going to take a super literal approach to it, okay? So that, I just, I thought that it would be helpful. Here's why. Here's, here's what the verse, this is a very strict word for word, almost not even paying attention to the English structure translation. Here's what it, here's what it says. For this is how God loved the world, that his son, only son, he gave that all the believers in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So I'll say that again. It's just, I'm translating it this way because I think contextually it makes more sense to what the point is. For this is how God loved the world, that his son, only son, he gave, that all the believers in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So now, it's, again, it's a very literal, very literal translation, and already some of you notice that there are words missing from what you normally see, like whosoever. I'll get to that in a moment. The point I want to make as we break this down is that there are words that, are mis, that, that we misunderstand, and so is one of them. Even the word so. Um, he's not like the surfer from California who is, you know, God so loved the world, man. It's He's not talking about the degree of God's love. It's not the degree, but the condition of his love, the manner of his love. And that's why I've, I've said, said it this way. For this is how. For God so loved the world. For this is how God so loved the world. So John is making a point about God's actions in history. Not the degree of his actions in history, but the fact of his actions in history. What did God do? We'll get to that in a second. For God so loved what? Kids, for God so loved what? The world. The world. Believe it or not, <laughs> this is very, very challenging to get right. When you read a verse like this, and this verse, and you see, for God so loved the world, you immediately think of something when you hear the word the world. Right? What does that even mean? What The Greek word is cosmos. We get cosmos from that, right? And it's a word we refer to the universe. The whole cosmos, the universe, from the Milky Way to the next, you know, interstellar, wherever it is, in this huge, vast space. Now, what is interesting about this word is that it means several things, depending on the context. Now, A.W. Tozer points out, um, for example, in Acts 17.24, cosmos, the world, refers to the entire universe as a whole. In John 13, verse 1, in other places, it's used of the physical earth itself, the, the realm of our planet, what we call the third rock from the sun, the earth, the world. 
Now in John 12, verse 31, it's used to describe the world as in the system of evil. The sphere of Satan and darkness. When we say don't love the world, we're not saying you shouldn't appreciate plants and dirt. We're saying you should not love the world in the sense of the evil system that is unrighteous and violates God's law. In Romans 3.19, it's used to describe the entirety of the human race, the world, as in the 7 billion people on the planet. That's the world. In John 15.18, and even in Romans 3.6, it's used to describe um, humanity minus believers, right? The people who are against God, unbelievers. In Romans 11.12, Paul uses the word cosmos to describe Gentiles as opposed to to Jews. So one more example will suffice. It's used in a lot of places to only describe believers, the world, believers. So there are at least seven different uses of one Greek word. <laughs> Is that not overwhelming? Yeah. <laughs> you can see why it's incredibly tricky. So whenever we interpret the Bible, we have to keep in mind the context, and it helps us understand how we are supposed to translate it. Now, since there are multiple uses of the word world, context basically keeps us from becoming heretics. So using an illustration, let me read to you John 17, 9. You know this. John 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Jesus said, I am praying for them, the ones God the Father sent to Jesus, the elect of God. I am praying for them. Then Jesus says this, I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Same word, the world. Now, that said, what in the world is John talking about? Pun intended. What in the world is he talking about? Look at verse 17. John three seventeen. He says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Three times he says it, the world. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now, there's a good chance that John has the same idea in mind, given that he's using the same word within the same couple of verses with the same flow of thought. The question is, in what sense is he using the word world? Is he talking about a specific group of people? Is he talking about the sphere of darkness and evil, the actual physical creation, the planet or the universe or something else? What is he getting at when we say, for God so loved the world? Now, there are a variety of interpretations out there, but some believe that since you know, John is talking about the believers who have faith in Christ, um, in the second part of verse 16, that clearly he's only talking about believers. So it's like this, for God so loved the believers the Christians, the elect of God, the chosen ones, that he sent his son so that all the believers who believe in him will have eternal life. That's what some, many Reformed Baptists will put this interpretation out there. Um, <clears throat> I don't think that's a terribly unreasonable interpretation. I don't believe it does justice to what he says in the next verse. John says that Jesus did not come into the world to what? To condemn it. He didn't come to condemn the world. Why didn't he come to condemn the world? Because the world is already under condemnation, right? He didn't, the world has been in rebellion since Adam. He didn't have to come to condemn the world. 
it's already under condemnation. He says as much about those who don't believe in verse 18. Believers in Jesus are not condemned. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Unbelievers are already under condemnation for their rebellion against God. So Jesus didn't need to condemn anyone because their condemnation was already secure. So I don't believe that the word world here in John 3.16 is believers only, though I do believe that since he was talking to Nicodemus, that in context he does mean that it is more than just God's love for the Jewish people. God's love includes the Gentiles. The gospel was to go to the Gentiles, to the nations. Now the Jews believed that they had a special love from God, and, and certainly they did. But he also loves the world. Couple this with Romans 5 8, which says, But God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were a part of the world that was condemned already, while we ourselves um, were under just condemnation for our rebellion against God, what happened? Christ died for us. So I take the world in John 3 16 and the following as being all humans. God both hates evildoers and sinners, Psalm 5.5 5 and the other ones that I quoted earlier. But guess what? He loves sinners. And that is not a problem at all. Right. That is not a problem at all. The Bible teaches both. I told you, if you didn't have a bucket, this was going to get messy. Get the bucket. Now having said all that, a word of caution This love of God does not mean that all persons have the ability to save themselves, nor does it mean that everyone is saved. This passage does not teach either of those things, contrary to the way some wield it. The point is, the world is wicked. It doesn't love God. And John tells us in 1 John 2, not to love it or anything in it. We are not to love the world with selfish love, as D.A. Carson has said. God loves the world with selfless love, the costly love of redemption. But we cannot do what God can do, right? We cannot do what God can do. So let's pick it apart some more. For God so loved the world that his son, his only son, he gave. That's a point of emphasis. He says it twice. His son, only son. God's love is this emphatic manner. It's mentioned two times, his son, his only son. Like Isaac was Abraham's only son, so Christ is God's only son. His love for the world is so fierce, so intense, so aggressive, that he gave his son his only son. That's a very literal translation. God's love for a world condemned in darkness and rebellion was so significant that he gave. God gave. God gave means that you need to close your mouth and listen. God gave. Don't look to yourself, right? Don't, don't, don't look at you like you did something impressive. Don't, don't, look, don't look to yourself for salvation. Don't look to yourself for sanctification. We look to God who gave. Yes. The text doesn't say, for God so loved the world that he looked at all the nice people and thought, gee whiz, these people are wonderful. He didn't deliver us from the clutches of sin by seeing something in us that was worthy of blessing. Salvation is rooted in God's love, not how awesome you and I think we are. 
God gave, not you, God, all you brought, all I brought, as Edwards once said, is the sin that necessitated the giving. That's all we gave. God so loved the world that he gave his son, his only son. He gave, right? That all the believers in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Most Bible translations say whosoever. Whosoever is in keeping with the tradition of the King James Version, which is fine as long as you don't think that there's, there's what we call an indefinite relative, or, or in other words, zero identification regarding who we're talking about. Whosoever has come to mean whoever, as in, well, we don't know, but it must be somebody. Whosoever has led and, frankly, led to mass confusion. It's about the persons who believe. Nothing about who will do it, who has the ability to do this, believing. Rather, it's all the believing ones, or everyone believing. Now, the reason my translation doesn't have whosoever is because I'm taking, again, the more literal translation and I want to avoid the baggage with that word whosoever, because it's sort of just like out there. And whosoever, whosoever, whosoever. Well, it's specific. Um, the Greek phrase is pasha pasuan. Um, pas is an adjective. It refers to the verb. Um, the verb is pasuan. Pistis is faith in Greek, and it's the people who believe. The people who have faith. So the phrase means literally not whosoever indefinitely or in, you know undefined. It means all of those who have faith, every believing person, every believing human being, all the believers, as it's talking about all the people exercising faith. Here's the point. This verse is all about God's love for humanity being showed and demonstrated through his saving of those who believe by giving them eternal life. I'll say it again. This verse, for all the baggage that it has, is all about God's love for humanity being showed and demonstrated, being shown and demonstrated through the saving, his saving, of those who believe by giving them eternal life. Brother Adam read this verse, 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Notice the order. The only possible way for a person to believe on Christ is the prerequisite of being born again. That's the connection to Nicodemus. All the people believing, um, all the believing people rather, in the world who believe on Jesus Christ has been born of God. So only born again people believe. Right? It's the doctrine of regeneration. You, if, if you could believe with your dead heart, why did Jesus need to change it and resurrect it and get it you know, where it should be? So John here in 1 John, the letter is talking about the same thing he said back in the Gospel of John. So that's a, a very technical, and, but I did it because I want to ensure that we all learn how to properly study our Bibles, and I really want to dispel all the beliefs, the weird beliefs that are out there about this verse. It doesn't teach universal salvation. It doesn't even talk about who it is Christ died for. Notice that. There's not a single word about who Christ died for in this verse. It doesn't teach anything about how God just loves everyone and, you know, he's so chill in heaven and it's all good. Everyone will be saved. It's fine. 
It doesn't mean that God loved the world and then he sent multiple saviors to rescue it either. It doesn't teach what many people assume it teaches. God loved the entirety of his creation, specifically all peoples. How so? He sent Jesus. He gave Jesus so that the people of faith won't perish, but will have eternal life. That's what the passage teaches, which has a lot of implications. So you might ask, well, why all the fuss? Why is it that you're teaching this the way that you're teaching it? Why can't we just leave it what it says? And how do I know that you're not just some fancy guy with a bunch of Greek words? And you're not leaving me astray. <laughs> Those are great questions. Let me help. When it comes to the mission of the church, it's important for us that we have our message straight. That's why this matters. We have to have our message straight. We must have our theological eyes dotted and our T's crossed. That's what we have to have. To the best of our ability, we should be pursuing that day in and day out. Because the last thing the world needs is a wrong gospel message. Now, we, we may get some of this wrong from time to time, but let's not be wrong because we haven't put forth the effort. But we do need to get this, this message straight. It, listen, it does, it does no good to turn an evangelist loose if all he is going to tell people is the same thing that Oprah Winfrey tells people. We can't, we can't advance the mission if our message is disheveled and muddled up and we're not even sure what it is. We, we can't fight an abortion holocaust if we're not clear on the gospel. If we want to be people of truth, then it means we must always be people of truth, not just when it's convenient. We can't sometimes have the truth, and other times we're fine with falsehood. The Bible tells us not to be double-minded, which means that when we, when we share this gospel message, we must give all of the gospel. Right? We are not, we're not to tell people that God hates them and that's it. Nor are we to tell them that God loves them and that's it. We are to share the gospel of the kingdom and all of the gospel of the kingdom. So you can't go around just telling people that God loves them and then think, well, I've just shared the gospel. I've shared the good news. God loves you. Oh, okay, right? You, <laughs> you can't hijack this verse to somehow get your half true point across. For the unbeliever, dead in his sins, God hates them. Psalm 5 5. Why? They are rebels. Yeah. And yet the love that God has for the world and those stuck in sin, those that are condemned, that Jesus came to rescue, right? He gave his son. But just because Christ died 2,000 years ago doesn't mean that they're okay with God now, which is what is assumed when people think sharing the gospel means telling people that God loves them. No. If we are to proclaim the gospel, we must tell the whole truth. You have sinned against a holy God, a thrice holy God, and he is angry towards sinners. But the Bible never says anywhere that God is wrath. Never once. The Bible says God is love. Which means that in order for someone to get right with the God that they have sinned against, they must not embrace God's love in a general sense. They must embrace God's love in a very specific sense, namely a trust in Jesus Christ alone. So we are narrow-minded. We do think there's one way to be saved. That's it. We think there's one way to fix the, the plethora of problems that we have in our society. 
So sharing the gospel has two steps, right? It, it coincides with the Lord's commands. Repent and believe. There is law. There is gospel. Take one out of them. You don't have it. There is repentance from sin, which is the transgression of God's law. And there is belief in the gospel, which is that Christ died for sinners and was raised from the dead on the third day. And this works itself in a variety of ways. But recently, with us going to Planned Parenthood in D.C. last week, sort of churned up a lot of this emotion as I was writing. It's a very visible way. You, you don't get a woman to stop the murder of her child by refusing to call the thing what it is. Right? Right. So we are begging and pleading with her not to kill their baby boy and their baby girl. And you don't get that by shouting, you know, God loves you. And, and that's it. God, God loves me? Why? Well, I knew it. So he must be fine with what I'm about to do. If we desire to be consistent biblical Christians, then we need the proper buckets, we need the proper distinctions, we need the proper definitions. And that takes way more effort than just throwing out a bunch of fallacies. And herein lines the thrust of our message, and we'll end with this. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can take a covenant breaker and make him into a covenant keeper. That's it. And only the full gospel deals with sin and, 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 and deals with the sufficient grace of God found only in Jesus Christ. So a halfway gospel cannot save, right? A half-truth is still a whole lie. God's love for the world was shown in his giving of Jesus. And the promise is that those who believe on him for whole salvation will experience the entirety of eternal life with him. And let me say this, because we're not truncated pietists. I don't think you are. I think I know most of you really well. <laughs> we are not sitting around waiting for Jesus to come back. We're not sitting around with our hands tied. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? We know what we're supposed to do. And yes, the, the vision of eternal life is going to be glorious. No more sickness, cancer, We'll see our loved ones who have gone before us. And it's just to me this glorious, eternal life. But we're not just sitting there waiting for that. We are gospel people with a gospel mission. So that's John 3.16. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are often confused by your word. And we admit that it isn't because our, um, it isn't because your word has problems. No, we have problems And it's high time we admit it. Lord, we desperately need your Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth, just as Jesus said that he would. We know know not to lean on our own understanding, lest we end up making a mess of life. And yet we are guilty of leaning on human wisdom and understanding, oftentimes thinking about your truth last. So Father, would you forgive us? We also pray this evening that you would fill us with both zeal and understanding. Our nation is in desperate need of the truth of your word, for our nation has a ton of zeal, but has no understanding. Your word is a light unto our path, so we shouldn't be surprised that when your word is rejected, people stumble around in darkness. So forgive us our sins, including our complicit sins in contributing to the chaos. 
We ask for your forgiveness, Christ, and we know your word promises that you grant it. You are faithful and just. So we ask this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.